We're in Numbers chapter 20 tonight. Verse 1, Word of God. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Sin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. There was no water for the congregation. They assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought us, the Lord's assembly, into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rock, the rod before the Lord, just as he has commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore... You shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. From Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. Thus your brothers Israel has said, You know all the hardships that have befallen us, that our fathers went down to Egypt, and we stayed in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice. He sent an angel and brought us out from Egypt. Now, behold, we're at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through the field or through the vineyard. We'll not even drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or the left, until we pass through your territory. Edom, however, said to him, You shall not pass through, or I will come out with a sword against you. Again, the sons of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if I and my livestock do drink any of your water, then I will pay its price. Let me only drink, uh, pass through on my feet, nothing else. And he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with a heavy force and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. Now when they set out from Kadesh, the sons of Israel, the whole congregation came to Mount Hor. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron at Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron will be gathered to his people, for she shall not enter the land which I have given to the sons of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and his son Eleazar, bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar, so Aaron will be gathered to his people and will die there. So Moses did just as the Lord had commanded. They went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation, After Moses had stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar, Aaron died there on the mountaintop. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain, and when all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, 
all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would fill me tonight, Lord, and you would guide and direct me, keep uh, foolishness and fleshliness and sinfulness away. And might it be your pure word, Holy Spirit, that I expound. And for all of us, gracious God, you know that many of us are battle-weary, body-weary, and that you would uh, bind us up, give us encouragement even in light of, um, in light of the weightiness of this subject. We pray that you would receive glory and honor, and we ourselves would be more greatly conformed into your holy image, Jesus Christ. Amen. My purpose tonight is, um, there are three sections in this this chapter. Uh, Verses 1 through 7 is the first section, then 8 through 22 is the middle second section, and then the third section deals with the death of Aaron, is 23 to 29. What I want to do is um, I want to treat the death of Miriam and then I want to treat the death of Aaron. So we're just going to look at those, that first and third section, obviously under the general subject of, um, of death. And so we'll consider that, the death of God's people. And so that's what I want to look at just for tonight. It's I'm going to be a fairly simple uh, sermon, I think. In, a, in relationship to what I just mentioned, the death of Miriam and the death of Aaron, and then we have the waters of Meribah, the whole tenor of this chapter um, is, a, is a solemn one. You have the death of Miriam, and then Moses' older sister, she's the oldest, and I think then you have um, Aaron is three years older than Moses, and then Moses. Um, you have the death of Miriam, then you have the waters at Meribah, where they're, they're grumbling and complaining. And this is, a, this is a regular occurrence in the life of Israel. And then the chapter concludes um, with obviously the death of Aaron, who is the first high priest. So this is, um, th- this is a sober passage. I sometimes feel concerning my own ministry and even my own constitution, I do feel bad for you all. I'm wired a certain way. And my wife this afternoon said, you know, can you do the peppy, happy? And I said, you know, I wish I could. I, I, I pray so much that I can be more peppy and happy. I really do. And I set off every sermon this morning. I said, I'm going to preach peppy and happy. And then what happened, happened. I, I didn't do it. This passage, th- this is not an infrequent subject. And this is not an infrequent t- tone or tenor within the Bible. And I know sometimes we find what we're looking for, and so I get all that. This is, um, this is a fairly accurate picture of what life in the wilderness for the pilgrim is like, this chapter. And I'm not saying we walk around with a hair shirt and we're, we never have anything happy and light and jovial. I'm not saying that. Moses in Psalm 90 tells us to count our days because of this, because of this subject. Um, th- this, this death is a, it is a sojourn, die, sojourn, die. That's the picture of, of life in the wilderness. And um, righteous suffering Job puts it this way. 
This is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. That's kind of the tone of this passage. And what the Bible, what the Bible impresses upon us believing people is that the sin of Adam and then subsequent our actual sins plunged man into the estate of misery. So to connect the two things, sin equals misery. And then if we could flip that around, which is why heaven is so attractive or should be so attractive and Christ is so attractive, is holiness equals happiness. Sin, misery, holiness, happiness. The flesh doesn't reason like that. But this chapter is teaching exactly that. The, the fruits of sin is, is misery, is, is sorrow. And um, it, it's, it's amazing thing to me that we who have the Holy Spirit, forgiven in Christ, prayed for by Christ, we have a Bible in our hands. It's amazing to me that the devil can trick God's people into thinking that sin is, will produce happiness and joy. All of us here are susceptible to that. He comes and lies and sets some shiny sin before us and says, sin, it will be pleasurable, and we bite for it. But this chapter is here to show us the wages of sin is death, and of course Christ takes away the judicial death, but I want us to think wages of sin is always misery. The Puritans would say when the devil is promising you some sweet thing by sin, don't think about what you're going to get, but think about what you're going to lose. You will lose. So it is a, I understand it's a, it's a, it's a sober subject and the tenor is somewhat melancholy, um, but I'm going to try not to be too melancholy. Something which is encouraging here, even with the death, the couple of deaths that we're looking at and the grumbling, uh, chronologically he, here we're in chapter 20, but um, we're, we're at um, the 40th year, we're at the beginning of the 40th year. In the, in the sojourn, uh, in the travel. Numbers chapter one opens with year two of God's people being emancipated from slavery. They were in slavery 430 years. They cried to the Lord, the Lord heard them. He sent him his deliverer, Moses, who's a type of Christ, leads them out of bondage. And, and so Numbers opens with, as I say, year two, Numbers one one. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So the book of Numbers is about the wilderness sojourn from slavery, walking through the desert for 40 years and then entering into the promised land. That's the book of Numbers. And so now in chapter 20, we are at the beginning of year 40. And so we're, we're, the Bible will use this literal pilgrimage and it will use it metaphorically in Hebrews chapter 11 and Hebrews chapter 12 that their pilgrimage, they're on their way home to the promised land. And the promised land was a real physical land, but typically it was pointing forward to the promised land where we're going home. We say we're going home. They were going home. So yes, it's a melancholy subject. Yes, with death and death, it's melancholy. But we're, the people of God are almost home. I want you to think about that. You're almost home. There's a country song. It was like 10 years ago. I forget. It's, it's not, he's not a popular singer. It, it's almost home. 
And the people of God are almost home. They're almost through the wilderness. And they're just about to enter into um, the promised land, into the land of Canaan. So what's interesting about that is here we are halfway through the book. And we're at year, the beginning of the last year. What's interesting about the book of Numbers is that it records just some of the highlights. We don't have a very detailed record of on day one they had pancakes and on day two they had sausages and eggs. It's just very general. God is just touching on some of the highlights of, of the pilgrimage. And, and actually, if I, I think I should perfect that. So from chapter 1 to chapter 20, God actually doesn't record the highlights he records some of the lowlights and he records some of the sins of God's people as they're trekking through the wilderness. And not all of the sins of God's people, they're not all professing Christians who are unbelievers. They're not all hypocrites. And by which we learn the principle that even real Christians, we're going to spend our whole lives. Um, and I, I'm sure I'm not the only person here. When you sin and you don't want to sin, do you not have self-recrimination? <laughs> this is a Romans chapter 7. See, why do I do the things I, I say I'm not going to do? Why will I not do the things I promise I will do? And so God says, and the people of God sinned here, and they sin, they're sinning here in Meribah, and they, they're sinning by Korah's rebellion, so God does record some of the lower sins of God's people in the wilderness. Now, the Bible says both, both in the book of um, 1 Corinthians chapter, oh, I want to say 10 or 11, maybe 10. It's chapter 10, verse 11. In the book of Romans, quoting the Old Testament, these things are written for our instruction. So the death here of these two saints is written for our instruction to teach us about death. And then also... God recording, and there was sin here, and there was sin here. This is meant to inform us that we would steer clear of the things that were snares, particularly to God's people in the Old Testament, and that we would learn from them. Um, and one of the sins that the people of God regular, well, two of them, one is idolatry, and the other one we see here with the waters of Meribah. They complain. And this is stunning, and I know I try not to talk too much about this, but I know I do talk too much about it, about the sin of uncleanness. And I know probably all the women think I'm a loon, for, and I sometimes do think I'm a loon for as much as I hammer it, but I know I'm right, but I know I'm a loon. The sin that they were constantly engaged in was not expressly the sin of sexual uncleanness. They were grumbling. And you think, well, complaining, is it all that bad? I mean, I've got that down to a fine art. I'm like Jackie Chan of complaining. But it's, it's, an, it's an obnoxious sin. God, God will say, and they were complaining here, and they were complaining at Korah's Rebellion, and now they're complaining at the waters of Meribah. And when you stop and dissect complaining, and perhaps we'll go there next week, it's really, it's an obnoxious rejection of God's providential a government over over our lives. It's telling God to his face, he's, he's got it wrong. And uh, I know that God disciplines me. Uh, he disciplines me a certain way uh, regularly uh, for um, disapproving of his providence in my life. 
it's, um, it's, a, it's a form of discontentment, hence the grumbling. It's very convicting, at least to me. So now let's look at the death. So we'll treat Aaron and Miriam kind of together, kind of separate, but kind of together. Let's first look at the death of Miriam. So as I say, this is here for our instruction, just to consider this, the general subject of death, who in their right mind would have a sermon on the subject of death. I guess if you're going to preach the Bible, you have to talk about it. So here we have the death of Miriam, Numbers 20, verse 1. Now Miriam dies there as the people of God stayed at Kadesh, and she was buried there. The last time we saw Miriam, I believe this is correct. You could correct me if I'm wrong. But one of the last times we saw Miriam was in chapter um, 12, I think it was. In chapter 12, what we saw with Miriam and Aaron is, now remember, uh, Miriam and Aaron and Moses are brothers and sisters. They're Levites from the same Levitical family, Deuteronomy 1, Deuteronomy chapter 2. And um, what we saw there is that Miriam and Aaron were criticizing Moses, who is the most meek servant uh, before the Lord. He spoke face to face or mouth to mouth with the Lord. And they're criticizing um, Moses for his choice of wife. He had chosen as a wife a woman who is an Ethiopian or a Cushite. So obviously there's a kind of a ethnic, uh, I don't want to say racial, um, but r- racial context to it. And so they were displeased with his choice of uh, wives, namely partly to do with her color. And she's a real believer, which is a sad thing in itself, and that might make another sad sermon, but we'll leave that for another day. The real sin was not so much the the racial kind of a sin. Um, The real sin with Miriam and Aaron is they lusted for leadership. That's what they really, that was the real, the real criticism is, who are you, Moses? (laughs) You're our younger brother, and I'm the older sister, and Aaron's your older brother, and we're both holy. We're both believers. God has used us both in a mighty way, and who are you? And they, they lusted for a higher place in leadership uh, among the people of God. That's Miriam. She's a godly woman. She's a believer. And so when I'm saying these things, and these things are recorded, I'm not saying that categorically it's indicative of an unbeliever, because Miriam's in heaven, Aaron's in heaven. They're believers. But real believers can sometimes commit some doozy sins. And this is pride. To say, I should be higher, and you should be lower, and I should be higher. This is pride among the godly. And when you think of pride, it's devil-like. We're not, again, it's an expression of lack of contentment with our uh, estate or condition. And when, when we think of it, and in light of the salvation that we enjoy in Christ Jesus, and we're all prone to this, I think it's the last sin that dies in us is the sin of pride. as a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ that believes that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which is true, how can any of us be proud? How is that possible? How can any of us look at ourselves in the mirror and even know a little bit about ourselves and still be proud? But it's there. Charles Spurgeon said, when people think lowly of you or speak lowly of you, don't get so mad at them. And I'm paraphrasing, they don't know the half of it. (laughs) But we don't know the half of it. 
And so it is sometimes helpful for God to show us when we're getting this way. <laughs> Here's the guy I saved to, to humble us. So her sin was one of pride. Now, Miriam was an amazing saint. She was a servant to the servants. So Moses, typological of, of Jesus Christ, one of the high, greatest figures in the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, David. Um, God used Sister Miriam to save Moses, the servant of God, out of the Nile. She's a servant of the servant. And she is given a Holy Spirit-inspired uh, victory song that she sings. I want to say Exodus chapter 15, that after God brings his people through dry land and throws Pharaoh and his army down, Moses, her brother, sings a Holy Spirit-inspired victory song, and then she sings. So the Bible actually refers to her as a prophetess. So here's this woman who's used amazingly by God, but yet she, she still sins. And you remember when she sinned in the way that she did in Numbers chapter 12, God struck her with leprosy. It's a picture of being a walking dead man. And Aaron immediately was terrified that she would die. And he turned to his brother Moses. <laughs> now he elevates Moses. And it says, essentially, pray for her. And Moses prays for her. And God hears the prayers of his prophet. And he saves his sister. And he preserves her life. He restores her health. But then he, he, he says she's going to be one whole week outside of the camp in solitary confinement. No union, no friendship with the people of God, just for a week. Now here we are from that to this. Does she enter that typological promised land, that, that, that which was um, for signifying heaven? Does she enter? No. She comes right to the border and she dies. She, she doesn't enter in. Now, here's where I cannot be dogmatic with Miriam. I can be dogmatic with Brother Aaron and Brother Moses because God says it. I can't say categorically her dying prior to entering this earthly promised land is an expression of God's discipline. I can't say that categorically because the text doesn't say. It says she just died. I can say it was not God's decretive will that she enter into the promised land because she died. In Ephesians 1, 1, 1, 11, God governs everything according to the counsel of his own will, according to his own good pleasure. So it was not God's will that she enter into that land. She died. Now, I do want to speak to a little bit to the notion of discipline. God disciplining a person that's loved, forgiven, useful to the kingdom, all of those things. But when they sin and they're forgiven for Christ's sake, God still disciplines them, even to the point of saying, you're not going into the promised land. You're going to die in the wilderness. Because you sinned against me and against the people, I am so displeased with you, reconciled, and I love you. I'm displeased with that sin, and I'm going to, I am going to correct you and discipline you, you're not going into the promised land. You're going to die in the wilderness. I, if I were a betting man, that occurred to um, Miriam. I don't need to be a betting man for Moses and Aaron because God says it. That's exactly what he says for them. You're not going to enter the promised land. 
you're going to die on this side of the river because you sinned against me. I do want to touch on that just a little bit. Now, death is in the world uh, fundamentally because Adam sinned against God. And I say it all the time, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And so the wages of sin is death. So that, that judicial death was passed on to man. And in Christ Jesus, now, now in Christ Jesus, his success becomes our success. So there's no longer any eternal death for us in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never experience the wrath of God. You will never hear to, if you If you love Christ in spirit and in truth, when you die, you'll hear, come, ye blessed. There's no condemnation. We have passed from death to life. That, that, that's the facts. But we still will die. And God does teach us many things by our death. It's, it's not judicial. And it, it won't be eternal. We're not going to be separated from God in Christ. But God still does... Um, sometimes discipline his people even by bringing their life short, as it were. So I I do want to um, say a few things um, concerning that, concerning the discipline. Um, When God, uh, this is a Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 14. When we sin against God, as believers, as Miriam is a believer, Moses is obviously a believer in Aaron, as I've mentioned, it doesn't take away the love of God for us. It doesn't say that God hates us or anything like that. But it does offend God. It does anger God. It does displease God. Um, And God does retain to himself the right to either inflict or that which is less than pleasurable or to take away certain things which may in themselves be attractive or beneficial. In this case, entering into the promised land. Again, it does not mean that we ourselves are disapproved, but sometimes, well, let's take the example of, of Miriam. We sin. God chastises us or corrects us. There's some kind of affliction, and God removes the affliction after a while. We may not even perceive the particular lack of outward blessing that has been taken from us because of our sin. I think of the person that say, and I'm being, I'll be hyperbolic, it will be silly. No, I won't even use that as an example. There are things that we can do as Christian people that will forever bar us from certain earthly privileges. You're just not going to get them. And sometimes in the committal of the sin, you're not aware of it. And you think, well, I'll be forgiven because I'm in Christ. You, you will. But you're never going to enjoy that benefit that you, that you w- would have enjoyed. You will forever have sullied your name as it were, and you're never going to get it back on this side of the grave. That is something that's here for our instruction. I'll just say a species of an example, and I'm not thinking of anybody in this church. If a man were to defile his marriage bed as a minister, if he were, um, he's never going to recapture his good name. If he's in Christ, he's forgiven. If he repents and reconciles himself to the church, he'll be restored. He will never recapture his good name. It will forever be solid. There is a book called The Stain That Stays, and it was written by a minister. 
And so I'm just using that as, a, as, a, as an example. And that's the case with Miriam and with, I, I think, with Miriam and certainly with Moses and Aaron. This is here for this reason. All of us are tempted to sin in various ways. This is the First Corinthians chapter 3. I don't exactly know how rewards work in heaven. I know there are certain levels of rewards in heaven. I don't know how they work. I know that they, are, they exist. What, what privileges may we, may we take away from ourselves if we press on in our own sin and to say nothing of any earthly advantages that we may never possess because of God's correction of us for our sin? I know a solemn theme, but it is worth bearing out because sometimes as those who are completely forgiven in Christ, we think, well, then there's no, um, there's no recourse for my, my sin. So I kind of get out of jail free card. Um, that's actually not true. Okay. There's no eternal recourse, but there is very much um, earthly recompense. Now, let's look at uh, Miriam's obituary. We're just considering the subject of death. Her obituary is a very short one. Uh, Miriam died there and she was buried. I'm not being silly, but I just do want to say a little bit something about obituaries. If you have ever had the opportunity to uh, write an obituary, my sister wrote my mother's obituary, and she did an exceedingly good job. And she was very, she was very um, truthful, but she was very circumspect and very gracious, I would say. Um, if you ever have the opportunity to write the obituary of someone that you love, the final words of someone that you love, th those are things to consider. You want to be truthful, and you want to be helpful, and you want to be gracious and kind and wise. You don't need to say every bad thing that you may have experienced in the life of that person, nor do you be, need to be extra flowery, any of those kind of things. Um, th that's just a little bit about obituary writing. This obituary is so short, and again, I'm going to be a little speculative here. Some of this speaks to the idea of the suddenness of death. And she came there and she died. I don't want to be too, I don't want to be morose. I don't want to be morose at all. Um, the whole suddenness of her death, the obituary, it teaches us the suddenness, suddenness of, of death in general. You could have cancer for 50 years. The day you die, people are going to be like, I can't even believe it. What, hap what, what happened? Well, you've been watching the person inch towards death for 50 years. When it comes, it comes. And it, it's a sudden thing. It's a certain thing. And it, it speaks to the brevity of life, the certainty of death, and the quickness of it. When it comes, it comes. And um, I'm, sure, I'm sure almost everyone in this room, that, and she died. I talked to her yesterday, and she's not here today. This is written for our instruction. I, I don't think anything... This is, this is to make us better believers. This is a Psalm 90. Count your days. Think about these things. Again, not in a melancholy way, like, oh, I can't believe what a bummer. No, 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 no. I, this will sound strange to you. I often speak of death in my marriage counseling. Pre-marriage counseling is really fun. Handsome boy, handsome girl... And they're just going to be a handsome, handsome. And I love it. I really do. I love pre-marriage counseling. Um, it's really fun for me. 
Regular marriage counseling is the complete opposite of that. I speak of this in regular marriage counseling. Because sometimes in regular marriage counseling, one person wants to throw another person off of a roof, believe it or not. I introduce the fact, you only have this person for a little bitty time. And you're going to look around someday, and they're not going to be there. And, I, and I'm not even, let's not even be silly, like, oh boy, no, 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 no. That'll slow you down. That'll, that'll slow down a lot of fights. That woman, that guy that you have is there for just a little bitty time. And, and someday you're going to want them laying next to you, and they're not going to be there. And that'll take the fights out of the fights. And so this, this suddenness, they're here today, and they're gone tomorrow... There's a chapter in the book of Genesis, chapter 5. It's the genealogical record. And such and so was such and so years old, and he died. And such and so was such and so years old, and he died. And you think, Holy Spirit, why would you inspire Moses? That's the whole chapter. And such and so, such and so, whatever, 900, 800. Wow, that's a long time. And he died. And he died. This is here to, to convince us <laughs> this will be said of us. And he died. And, he sh- and she died. Now you think, well, who in their right mind doesn't believe this? Everybody in this room. Everybody in this room. We say we believe it. But then we live our whole entire lives <laughs> pushing this whole idea away from us for ourselves for our loved ones, but it's here. God puts it here. So that is a basic thing that we learn concerning Miriam and Aaron, certainly. And then we have the burial. I don't want to say too much about this. Um, yeah. I don't know when... I'm not, if your loved one who has died in Christ has been cremated, I'll just say this at the outset. If your loved one who has died in Christ has been cremated. You cremated them. They're with Christ. Should I say that again? Or everybody gets it. The cremation does not separate the soul from Christ. But that's not... This is written for our instruction. When you read the Bible, both propositionally and practically, meaning example, believers bury their dead. Old Testament saints buried their dead, and they were buried... New Testament saints bury their dead and they were buried. Jesus Christ, our example and our propitiation, and he was buried. We say, as whatever kind of Christians we are, we're Bible believers. What does the Bible say regarding the body of our loved ones? Um, Yes, they're going to dissolve into dust. I understand that. But we still treat them with care and respect and we bury them um, in anticipation of resurrection from the dead. Now, m- maybe you think, well, is it a big deal? It, if the Bible is your rule for faith and practice, it should be a big deal. I don't know when cremation became popular in the Christian church. It is exceedingly popular. I'm not, again, I'm not picking on anyone. I would say probably 60 to 70% of even this tiny church anticipates cremating their dead. They simply do not believe what I just said. 
that the Bible teaches the burial of our dead. As a child growing up in the Catholic Church, it was against the church to cremate. My father was cremated. <laughs> My mother was cremated. So everyone, everyone does this now. But when we look at the Bible, does the Bible teach burning of the bodies of our dead? Or does the Bible teach us to treat the bodies of our dead with reverence and respect and to bury them? Which is it? It's, I think, evident. I, I want to say something about the death of Miriam and, and Aaron to some degree. And I, I promise I'm not being too flippant. So, with Miriam, we see her sinning, and with Aaron, we see him. Remember Aaron? He, the, he, he, Moses is up getting the Ten Commandments, and Miriam's, uh, Aaron's down making the calf, and then he lies about it. Here's the first high priest. Hey, I don't know what, I just threw this stuff in the fire, and zips out, out came the, the cow, and I don't know. What do you, I don't know. It's these people. And you think, boy, Aaron, <laughs> what a mess. One of the things that death does for us, and this is a good thing, and I, I'm not being flippant, it frees us from sin. We're free from sin. George Whitfield is one of my favorite guys. And he, one of the things he anticipated eagerly by death is he was going to be free from sin. No more sin. Especially his. Especially his. It will fr- so there'll be no more envy anymore. From, by poor Miriam. There'll be no more cowardice by poor Aaron because by death, we're forever free from that. That's banished from the estate that we're going. We're going to a place where there's no more sorrow, no more tears, no more suffering, no more sin, which is the cause of all of that. And the other thing, which again, if we can think of it this way, this is not, we would be, we're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not courting our death to be free from sin, but it is something to think of. Um, the other thing that we're free from uh, at our death is the fear of death. Um, Martin Luther was afraid of death all the time. I'm afraid of death. I'm afraid of my own. I'm afraid to die. And Martin Luther constantly um, was terrified of death through his whole life. He had physical ailments and phys- physical problems, so he's, I, he always thought he was on the verge of death. I always think I'm on the, on the verge of death. And I'm afraid to die. He was afraid to die. And so you think, well, you're afraid to die. It means you're not a Christian. (laughs) I hope not. I hope not. The Bible speaks a lot about the fear of death. And there's a hymn that we sing. It's uh, what what wondrous love is this. And this is this good thing that God brings out of something which is a bad thing for God's people. To God and to the Lamb, I will sing, I will sing. To God and to the Lamb, I will sing. To God and to the Lamb, who is the great I am, while millions join the theme, I will sing, I will sing. While millions join the theme, I will sing. Second stanza. This is what Miriam and Aaron experienced. And when from death I'm free, I'll sing on, I'll sing on. God takes death, which originally was a curse, and in Christ takes away the sting of it. And by our death, we're free from the fear of death. We're not afraid of it anymore. We're forever free from any sin. From, can you imagine being free of fear, which is anxiety? That's this. It's the end. It's the end. Now, should I say something about Aaron? The only thing I want to say about Aaron is, um, is this. I'll say this, and then I'll be quiet. With, unlike with um, 
Miriam, where we have the suddenness and she died. It's a little bit different with uh, Aaron. God comes to Moses and to Aaron and he tells Moses, your brother Aaron's going to die. Now, we're still under the old epoch. This is a Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 4, 1 through 3. Somehow, miraculously, he's told um, Moses and Aaron, get ready. You need to prepare. You're going to die. And it's going to be very, very soon. And this is a little bit unlike Miriam. Sometimes in God's providence, we don't know. It's just sudden. I spoke with mom yesterday and I can't speak to her again today. Other times in God's providence, he forewarns us, is coming very, very soon. This is, get your house in order. Again, I am not speaking in a flippant way, but get your house in order. Um, If you've been with believers and they're told, you have a couple weeks, you have a month, it's coming. We try to prepare ourselves spiritually. We try to prepare our spouses and our children spiritually. And if you watch unbelievers, <laughs> they're signing over, they're taking poor grandpa's hand and they're signing over the car because he can't write anymore. And they're trying to get all the financial things. And I'm for all of that. I'm for all of that. But fundamentally, getting our house in order is not putting the house in the trust, which might be a good thing fundamentally is prepare to meet your God. And the thing I want to say in regards to Moses, yes, for Aaron, get ready to go, but also for Moses. Sometimes when God tells us your loved one is going, it's a kindness to the loved one, but it's a kindness to us. Then if we have capacity to go, we can be near them. In the day and age we live, there's lots of crazy things because we live in the modern age. But I'll tell you what, there's something which is very nice concerning the modern age. When they said to me, get back home, I could get on a plane and get back home and see my mom. This was 50 years ago. I wouldn't have been able to, I wouldn't have seen her. And so in God's kindness, he is preparing Moses, get ready, get ready to, to say goodbye to your brother, and get ready to say goodbye to your co-laborer. But it's not the end. For, for Aaron, he says this, even with the discipline and all that aside, he says, and he rested with his people. He went to his fathers. Yes, this is informative. Yes, it's a, a weighty subject. When we die, it's not the end. We go from one estate to another estate. All of our loved ones who have died in Christ, we're going to be gathered to our fathers and our mothers and our sisters and our brothers all because of Christ. May God be pleased with the preaching of even this heavy subject.